Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Welcome back to the Servants of Grace Theology segment. On today's episode, a listener writes in, and they have a great question. What is the war in heaven in Revelation 12? Well, this is a fantastic question, and it's an important question to understand. One of the ancient mythology stories is that the evil usurper, who is doomed to be slain by a royal prince, is yet to be born. And the version of the story that would have been most familiar to John's readers concerned Apollo's birth. When his mother, Leto, became uh, pregnant, Python the dragon sought to slay her to keep Zeus' son from being born. Zeus, the chief god, carried Leto on winds to a secret island to hide the expectant mother. Finally, Apollo was born, and four days later, he slew the evil dragon. Well, you see, the Apostle John would have known this popular story as he wrote the 12th chapter of Revelation. In fact, some scholars suggest that John was copying from mythology. And so John's perspective is that the history of Christ is a true story of our world. Pagan mythology partly consists of Satan's counterfeit of the true story of Christ to pervert the gospel for his purposes. Satan, John says, is a real dragon whose defeat is assured by God's promised son, Jesus Christ. And the dragon then attempts to stop the Messiah's birth and then persecutes the Messiah's people. Chapter 12 begins the second half of Revelation. The first half provided the general overview of history. Here we see the world's opposition to the true biblical gospel, Christ's judgment on the wicked nations, and our calling to persevere in faith. The second half of Revelation hones in on the chief character in their spiritual warfare concerning, uh, I mean, occurring behind the scenes. The primary enemy is Satan, the dragon. He is aided by two beasts, the harlot Babylon and the people who bear the mark of the beast. In fact, these figures are introduced in chapters 12 through 15. And one by one, their defeat and their judgment are shown in chapters 16 through 20. Located as it is in the book's center, Revelation 12 is considered by many scholars to be the central and the key vision. In fact, it depicts the decisive conflict between the church, the devil, and the royal child, Jesus Christ. Revelation 12 presents what may be regarded as history's prime explanation, a great spiritual conflict behind the scenes. Verse 3 presents a mighty, terrible monster at war with Christ. Beneath all the action on the surface of history is a great spiritual enemy seeking to destroy the church. John identifies him in Revelation 12:9 as that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. And many people today dismiss the devil as a fantasy or even a myth. But you cannot take the Bible seriously without believing in this personal and this powerful spirit, the fallen archangel who is the enemy of Christ and his church. Nor can you make any real sense of the world as it is without accounting for him. And so the the devil first appears in the Bible as a serpent who deceived and tempted Adam and Eve into breaking God's command, command, plunging our race into sin in Genesis 3, 1 through 6. In fact, in cursing him, God promised warfare between Satan's servants and the women's uh, children in Genesis 3, 15. The woman's offspring was Christ, but in him it includes the early church of the Old and the New Covenants. And the rest of history features the conflict between the devil and God's covenant people centered on his opposition to Christ himself. 
And so John's description of Satan as a great dragon connects back to the serpent of the garden. It incorporates the mythological dragon imagery that symbolizes chaos and evil throughout the ancient world. And the Old Testament often personified evil as a dragon or even a sea monster. Isaiah looked back on God's defeat of Pharaoh in the Exodus in these terms in Isaiah 51 verse 9. He spoke of God's judgment on Assyria saying that he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Isaiah 27 verse 1 says, And behind the mythical dragons of the ancient world is a real dragon, the devil. Here is the true monster who lurks in history, whom Peter describes as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, uh, 1 Peter 5, 8 says. John sees Satan as a great red dragon, the color standing for bloodshed and murder. And Jesus called him this in John 8, 44. He was a murderer from the beginning. And the dragon is further seen with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems, Revelation 12, 3 says. And in ancient mythology, the many-headed dragons seemed impossible to defeat. Likewise, Satan has heads and fangs and many worldly influences, and he acts with shocking dexterity. Along with the seven heads are the ten horns. In the Bible, horns symbolize strengths, and the ten horns speak of the strength of the devil in this world under Satan's powers, of the devil's powers. And Daniel's fourth and his most terrible beast had ten horns in Daniel 7. And that connection associates these horns with earthly kingdoms under Satan's control. In fact, reinforcing this idea are seven diadems on his head. Uh, Revelation 12.3 tells us, These are not unlike the laurel crown of victory worn by the woman, but are crowns usurped earthly dominion. And Paul therefore describes Satan in Ephesians 2.2. As the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You see, Satan does not serve, he only rules. That's vital to understand because his crowns are the iron crowns of tyranny. Satan longs to hear the hymn, crowning with many crowns, sung to his glory rather than to the glory of Christ. John is told that the dragon, dragon's tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth in Revelation 12.4. And many readers jump to the conclusion that this refers to Satan's leading a host of angels into heaven in rebellion against the Lord. But it's more likely that this vision symbolizes the arrogant aims of his warfare on earth against the church. And this same language was used in Daniel 8.10 of Antisius Epiphanes, that great persecutor of the Jews. And so Dan, uh, Satan intends for his malicious actions on earth to do damage in heaven. Only a vast monster could swing this his tail and knocks stars from the sky and so the dragon especially remembers god's promise that the child of the woman would crush his head and therefore the vision paints the the gruesome picture of the mother about to give birth and there with her is the dragon with his seven heads lurking to attack the child when he is born and this too is a story of the old testament after receiving the curse of enmity with the woman and her child satan sought to cut off the line First, he incited Cain to kill his godly brother Abel. And later when Israel went into Egypt, Satan led Pharaoh to order that all the male sons would be killed as soon as they left the womb. Satan entered King Saul's heart with murderous designs for David, through whom the true king would be born. In Babylon, Satan conspired evil Haman to wipe out the Israelite community, only to be thwarted through the resourcefulness of Queen Esther, whom God had placed near the Persian king. And finally, when the wise men came to King Herod, asking about the royal child who was to be born, Herod sent soldiers to Bethlehem to slay every male child up to two years old. 
All through biblical history, Satan has raged with a murderous passion focused on one object, to destroy the promised Savior before the Savior could put an end to Satan's dominion of evil. Now, John will elaborate further details on the of the Holy War as the chapter continues. But you see, this opening vision connects us now by telling us what happens to the woman after a child was born and taken up safely to God's throne. And John says this in Revelation 12, 6, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. This final verse makes three vital applications for us today. Uh, the first is that Christians must not think of the present world as home, for now is the time of our wilderness journey. This life is a time of testing and preparation for our true home when Christ returns. The world under the devil's power is hostile to faithful Christians. You see, Christians must be spiritually strong and biblically wary, for earthly opposition and moral perversity stands uh, behind the spiritual forces of evil led by Satan himself. Ephesians 6.12 says this, For we do not wrestle against the flesh and blood, Paul wrote, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And knowing this, we should not wage war in an earthly manner, relying on things such as wealth, power, or political influence. Our spiritual warfare depends on the re uh, spiritual resources a prayer, God's word, and holy lives. And in such a conflict, our calling from God is not to overthrow the spiritual forces of darkness, for we are not the slayers of the dragon, whether we are to stand against him. In fact, Ephesians 6.13 tells us we are to withstand the, in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Everything in the world that is contrary to God and his word, whether sexual immor immor uh, immorality, uh, secularist ideology, or consumer uh, ideolo I I I idols, is a weapon forged by Satan to afflict mankind and oppose Christ in the church. And when pressed to conform to worldly ways, we should see the devil's hand at work and resolutely refuse to aid and abed the, the enemy of our King Jesus. You see, God's wilderness is a place not only of safety, it's also of his provision. God sent ravens to feed Elijah during his three-and-a-half-year exile at the brook. And Israel was well-fed in the desert by the manna that God had sent him from heaven. God now feeds the church with his word, making faith grow strong even in affliction. It is his design that the wilderness should be a place where his covenant people would draw near to him in love, learning to rely on him completely for provision and protection. And finally, we need to remember that our enemy is a defeated foe. The child of the woman has come. He has conquered sin and Satan on the cross and risen into heaven with his father. He has promised to return and end the war and total victory. You see, there are still battles, some of them bloody and even painful, that God's people must fight. You and I must take hard stands that may even prove costly. But we stand for Jesus, not only grateful for his love, but certain of his victory in the end. And how inspiring it is in the midst of life's trials, failures, sorrows to be shown the glorious vision of how God sees the church, 
clothed in glory and crowned with stars. How wondrous it is to realize that history consists of the child's struggle to be born and his victory over the terrible dragon, and how solemn it is to recognize that we have a place in this titanic struggle. And John explains that our contribution in Revelation 12:11, Christ the Lamb is conquered by his blood. What significance we find for our lives if we stand firm in the faith and bear our testimony for the glory of his kingdom. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching this episode of the Servants of Grace Theology segment. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.